So I think we do need to sort of start looking at these broader questions around how, you know, power is centralised and mobilised by these systems, who benefits from these systems and who's harmed. And when we kind of ask those more core questions, AI just becomes part of a much bigger set of questions that we have to ask really around how society is going to be constructed. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. I've been wanting to do an episode on AI for a long time now, and I'm really glad this is the one we're doing. Of course, artificial intelligence runs through a lot of the conversations I have on this podcast. In the policy world in particular, AI has become one of the primary ways of thinking about everything from geopolitics to the future of humanity. And in recent years, much of the debate around AI has focused on bias. We now know that there are deep structural flaws in many of our AI systems. An Amazon hiring AI rejects female applicants. Automated parole systems disproportionately sentence black prisoners. And facial recognition has led to the false arrests of people of color. All of this has led to a tremendously important debate in the field. How do we remove bias from these systems? And how do we develop AI responsibly and ethically? But what if we frame that debate in completely the wrong way? What if the question isn't how we develop ethical AI? It's whether we need to totally rethink our understanding of AI, and maybe we shouldn't be developing it at all. That's the premise of Kate Crawford's new book, Atlas of AI. Kate's been immersed in this field for nearly 20 years. She's a principal researcher at Microsoft Research and the co-founder of the AI Now Institute at NYU. She's also an artist and was part of an electronic music duo that was nominated for an ARIA award, sort of like the Australian Grammys. Kate argues that at its core, artificial intelligence is rooted in extraction. It has to exploit the planet, people, and the data they produce in order to function, which also means that AI is deeply intertwined with power. It is fundamentally designed to serve the needs of the people that are designing it. Sometimes a book or an idea completely reshapes how we think about a topic. This is one of those books. Kate's reframing pushes the discourse around AI away from the intangible and in many ways unknowable world of algorithms and into the tangible world of resources, labor, and power, things we are familiar with. And in shifting our focus to these material elements, Kate has provided a map not just for understanding AI, but also for governing it. Here is Kate Crawford. So, there's, I mean, God, there's a million things I'd like to talk about with this book, but I actually wanted to start with um, where you end the book, which is describing that Jeff Bezos promotional video lecture mm. about Blue Origin. What happens when unlimited demand meets finite resources, the answer is incredibly simple. Rationing. That's a bad path. The line that you pull out of it kind of took my breath away at the time, which is we, that he says we'd have to stop growing, which I think is very bad for the future. 
The good news is that if we move out into the solar system, for all practical purposes, we have unlimited resources. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that video in general and that talk and his framing, um, mm. but also how his perception of the planet, how his ambitions, how his power, how you think of all those things in the context of AI, not just in the context of him wanting to build an interplanetary species or whatever it might be. <laughs> I love this question, Taylor. And I, I so love starting at the end because of the way that it, you know, for me is, it's about how we see the trajectory of the underlying ideology of big tech. You know, it's like, where does all this money go when billions of dollars have been sort of created by this handful of men? How do they spend it? They create a privatized space race to leave the planet. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of an, <laughs> it's an extraordinary um, abrogation of responsibility uh, and, and, and a desire to sort of commit to growth above all things. But it's it's so extraordinary when I found that, video for Blue Origin, a sort of promotional film. I mean, it, it really is the stuff of Lenny Riefenstahl. I mean, it's so beautifully put together. You know, you've got, you know, the images of, the, you know, the Saturn V taking off. You know, you've got these kinds of inspirational images. You've got mountain climbers. You've got divers. You've got explorers descending into canyons. And then you have, you know, Jeff Bezos himself just saying that this is literally the most important work that he's doing, that sort of the Blue Origin space mission is what it is about in order, precisely, as you say, to maintain growth. Because without growth, we have no future. What's the point, right, of life without growth? Right, right. And, and it's, such an extraordinary, it's such an extraordinary statement because, of course, you know, it, it takes us back through a fascinating intellectual history, um, which I trace back in the book and sort of go back to that classic landmark report by the Club of Rome in 1972 called The Limits to Growth. And they create these predictive models about the end of non-renewable resources and the impacts of things like population growth and, and the sustainability. And, it, and it's so extraordinary because, you know, no matter what, you know, they kept saying we, we kept trying different models, but nonetheless, everything collapses around the year 2100. There simply isn't enough resources to contend with the population demands. And, you know, it, it really is this, this clarion call to sustainable management and, and reusing resources. And, of course, Jeff Bezos, among many others, found this to be really terrifying. It's like we, we can't go to a no-growth model. We have to find a new frontier for growth. And, of course, the new frontier became space. And so you start to sort of see a range of sort of Bezos initiatives, but, you know, many other sort of tech billionaires as well, sort of looking at space mining, looking at space colonization. And what's interesting about this to me is, is not just the kind of colonizing metaphors and, and frontier mining as, as corporate fantasies, but it's also this fundamentally troubling relationship to the earth. You know, it, it, it completely displaces that idea of sustainability, reducing growth, you know, building forms of, you know, mutual aid. It's, it's actually much more about continuing as we are, just extending this, this industry of extraordinary extraction as far as it can go. And, and that history to me is one that really points to how we got here. It sort of tells us a lot about the AI industry as well, which is also premised on forms of extraction, extraction of natural resources, of labor, of data. 
and you sort of see that in the sort of in the space ideology too. You see it's kind of the compressed, if you will, kind of crystalline version of that ideology, but wrapped up in the fantasies of outer space exploration. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about the the various extractive elements of AI. Um, but I wonder if you could first lay out how AI has traditionally been defined. Mm, mm. I mean, you can look at the many books that have been written about AI and the many papers, and they almost all define AI purely as a set of technical approaches. This focus on algorithmic techniques has been very dominant, and, and also, I think, a, a parallel focus on the great men of AI, you know, the people who who sort of pushed the, the technical boundaries, you know, a little further each time. And I think this this is the kind of, I think, deeply abstract mathematical and immaterial understanding of AI that's become dominant at the moment, this idea that AI is in the cloud, sort of literally and metaphorically. It's, it is not of the earth. It, it has no material footprint. And it becomes, you know, purely sort of an, an, an abstract algorithmic nowhere, um, which, you know, for me was was I think it's it's a serious political problem as well as I think a sort of analytic problem. And part of the reason I wanted to write this book was to, if you will, bring AI back to earth and to really ground it as a material technology and, and to look at that material political economy that drives it. You know, what are the industrial formulations behind it? So for me, that that was really this idea of taking it away from algorithmic nowhere space and looking at the specific places where AI is made, produced, and, and where people and institutions are making choices. Yeah, it feels like when it stays in that intangible, ephemeral space almost, or theoretical space, it allows it to be anything to anybody, which has allowed it to be sort of imagined in all these ways to either aggrandize its creators or to empower the people who own it. Or, But something about making it tangible takes away that imagined ability of it, doesn't it? I think that's exactly right. And, and I think that the that intangible sort of, you know, enchanted, you know, we, we uh, use this term, Alex Campolo and I, in, in, in an article where we use this idea of mm. enchanted determinism, that these yeah, systems that. are sort of seen as, as both, you know, sort of magical and, and alien and otherworldly, and yet at the same time deterministic and, and can be used with predictive certainty to tell us, you know, how decisions should be made. Um, that is a political choice, and that has political ramifications. It means that we don't look at these wider planetary costs. It means we don't assess the many forms of human labor that are used to prop up these systems to make them appear intelligent. And it means that we don't look at the different kinds of alternative uh, futures that are possible, the other ways of actually, you know, ordering information and engaging with each other and, and, and all of the things that we turn to AI to do. Yeah. I mean, the, the sort of humanistic side of your work comes through so clearly in this book and I'm wondering if to what degree that shapes your thinking about this um, not thinking about this just as a scientist or even just as a social scientist but as an artist and mm. a musician has <laughs> uh, <laughs> that shaped how you viewed this whole discourse that you've been so immersed in for 20 years I mean well that's you know absolutely if you go back to the sort of earliest years of AI sort of in the 1950s and 60s 
it was much more of an interdiscipline. You know, you mm. had linguists sitting around the table with computer scientists. You had artists, you know, collaborating with people working on uh, speech recognition. You know, you, it, was, it was a much more uh, diverse field, both in terms of, you know, gender and, and, and disciplinary orientation. And, and we've seen that narrow. And particularly, you know, this is, you know, again, a, a history of capitalism, but when a field becomes very powerful and there's a lot of money involved, it tends to really uh, you know, narrow who is, is seen as, as, as an expert and who has a voice in that space. And obviously you can see how that happened in, you know, in Wall Street and it's certainly happened in machine learning as it's become such a high demand area where people are paid, you know, basketball salaries to work on these systems. Suddenly it, it became just the space where we can only talk about these systems technically and while I think the technical component is an important part here to analyze and and to critically grapple with, it has it has prevented us from looking with these more humanistic lenses, with social scientific lenses, with you know the the many different approaches that we should be understanding these systems. and and really, that's that became my methodology. That meant that like if 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 my point is that we have to move away from this abstract immaterial understanding of AI, then I have to, go to the places where it's being made. I have to physically go there and understand it and actually, you know, put myself, you know, in that space um, rather than pretending we can look at these things at arm's length. Yeah. So let, let's talk a bit about that. I mean, you, you your broader framing sees AI as an extractive technology ultimately and one that's deeply material. Um, and one of the core ways it is is by literally extracting resources and, and using tremendous amount of resources. Uh, what's the impact of AI on our natural world first? Well, it's, it's profound. And, and, and this to me is sort of one of the most transformative experiences uh, as a researcher in this space was, was really starting to study and understand and visit the places of mineralogical extraction, but also the places of sort of smelting and production and shipping that sort of sit behind uh, the conveniences that we experience with, you know, planetary scale computation. And, you know, that was kind of extraordinary to me to how, how these stories are not, not told traditionally. You know, we don't sort of think about rare earth minerals and, and lithium when we think about AI. But of course, these are core to how these systems work. And so one of the things I did was I, I traveled out to the Clayton Valley, which is, you know, out in Nevada, to visit the last lithium mine in the United States, which is in a place called uh, Silver Peak. Um, and of course, that same area was used for gold and silver mining in the 1800s and, you know, had populations move in and sort of, you know, strip the lands of, you know, of gold and silver and then created these ghost towns. And so to, to, to be in a place like a lithium mine, which is essential for the production of reusable batteries, you know, throughout the sort of, you know, the systems that we use like iPhones or, you know, a Tesla car, you know, this wide range of, of, of systems that, that rely on lithium. And to realize that lithium too has, has reached this point where we're at a crisis. We don't know how indeed we're going to keep maintaining these sorts of critical minerals that are essential to how AI, you know, works today. And in fact, a very recent report uh, that I just read uh, came out last month looks at if we find better ways of dealing with lithium, for example, if we 
recycle it if we use it wisely, we might be able to extend it out to 2100. If we don't, it could be as soon as 2040 where we just hit an absolute cliff in terms of what we can do. And so many products have lithium at their core and that makes us ask really different questions. And and it's interesting because these, you know, computational networks are participating in, in geological and climatological processes. They're actually transforming the Earth's materials into infrastructures. And, and if we think about that from the perspective of deep time, you know, where extracting elements that required billions of years to form inside the Earth in order to serve a split second of contemporary technological time in like an Amazon Echo or an iPhone that ultimately get discarded in, in less than five years. So that kind of obsolescence cycle is fueling this sort of this economy of more and more devices being produced and thrown away um, and I think makes us, I think, forget the deep costs of, of what is actually being built by these systems for these tiny moments of convenience. What, so on the storage and device capacity, certainly there's resource inputs, but why is AI as a technology or a process so energy intensive? So there are many different ways in which AI has become extremely energy intensive and, and it's really happened depending how you count, you know, in the last 15 years, sort of with the explosion of machine learning. And Emma Strubell at the University of Massachusetts Amherst uh, wrote an important paper back in 2019 where she looked at how much energy it takes to train a single NLP model. So that's a natural language model, things that, you know, we use to, you know, detect uh, the meaning of a, a phrase of text or to do a translation, for example. And it was such an important paper because it made us sort of contend with just what it takes to train a single model, which she tracked to being around, and again, this is a rough estimate, but around you know, 660,000 pounds of carbon dioxide emissions. Um, but that's the equivalent of 125 round trips between New York to Beijing. Wow. And What's worse is that, you know, she notes that this is at baseline, it's an optimistic estimate. That's like what you can do in the academy. It doesn't reflect the true commercial scale of what, you know, companies like Apple and Amazon are doing every day. And it certainly doesn't account for what's just happening right now, which is the shift to things like large language models. I mean, we're calling this, you know, the era of AI supercomputers. So we're actually making things that are more and more energy and compute intensive at the same time as the planet is under, you know, extraordinary strain. So in so many ways, I think the data economy is premised on maintaining this kind of environmental ignorance. Yeah. And, and there's no accounting of it. What's so remarkable? I mean, we get these little glimpses into these kinds of calculations of estimated energy consumption of certain processes, but nothing in terms of an accounting of the energy use of these large companies, for example. And glimpses is, is the right word. I mean, to, to really try to get a sense of what, say, an Alibaba or Tencent or Amazon is really using is extremely difficult and, and guarded corporate secrets. So, you know, that, that question of, you know, as a researcher, how you even find this, I mean, it's extremely, it's extremely hard and it shouldn't be. We should know very easily these these kinds of resource questions because I think without it, we cannot make a good calculus of, you know, what should be built 
and yeah. why and whether it's worth it because we're not we're really not contending with the true cost of AI at all. So it's so another um, extractive element of AI or an input into the AI infrastructure is labor. Um, you also describe what you call Potemkin AI, um, which kind of speaks to a number of different scholars who have talked about the labor that goes into, in a hidden way, into our supposedly automated systems. But I'm wondering how you, how you, how you see that, how you see the um, both the hidden labor and the, I mean, in many ways, unhidden labor too, just the huge amount of human activity that goes into this mirage of automation. I mean, you know, Jathan Sadowski uses this term Potemkin AI and Astra Taylor, who I think is fantastic, uses this term photomation, you know, yeah, which is another great one. Yeah. And ghost work, of course, too. Being and similar. ghost work yeah. by Mary Gray and yeah. Sid Suri is another one. Um, and I think all of these scholars are pointing to uh, uh, this profound occlusion of labor in terms of how these systems work. And it means that you have many, many humans often being paid extremely low wages. Often it's, you know, the equivalent of digital piecework. It's, you know, a, a, you know, a few pennies on the hour to, to really be sort of clicking and, and pointing and moderating and choosing and selecting and classifying the data systems that support how machine learning works. So across across the entire kind of ecosystem of AI, there there are people in the background who are effectively, you know, making these systems appear intelligent. And this is, you know, part of why I say that AI is, is neither artificial nor intelligent. It is clearly highly material. It's, you know, made from energy and rocks at pride and, you know, and all of yeah. these extremely earthly components. Yeah. But it's also made of people. It's mm. made of all of these forms of, of, of human labor um, that we don't see. Um, and that we don't pay very well, and that in, in many cases are, are doing work that's just physically and, and psychologically very taxing. And one of the things I did for the book, the sort of, you know, the site of where we can see humans engaging with algorithmic systems and robotics is, of course, the Amazon Fulfillment Warehouse. And, you know, for me, going inside one of these was a really important moment because it means that, you know, it, it's no longer abstract. You actually have to see the experiences of the people who are putting objects into boxes that we, you know, may happily order off the internet and not think about how we get them. And it is a physically extremely stressful job. And you can see it, you know, you see the bandages, you see the, the statements up on the kind of the, the voice of the workers boards inside uh, this sort of enormous factory space where people are saying, this is, this is not sustainable, you know, I need a break, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the rate, about meeting the picking rate, you know, the, the psychological stresses are profound. And of course, you know, I'm sure you saw this this sort of announcement from Jeff Bezos and Amazon just a just a month ago that they're now going to be introducing a new system that in addition to like sort of tracking your work per minute is going to be tracking the gestures and movements of your ligaments and muscles to at that sort of level of such profound granular surveillance to try and sort of reduce the, the physical stress while of course the response is by massively increasing the sort of the, the surveillance gaze. So for me, you know, 
these places um, allow us to look at, I think, these deeper logics of work and what contemporary work could look like if this shift is allowed towards, you know, extreme surveillance, extreme sort of micromanagement that while it takes us back to, you know, to sort of Fordist and Taylorist principles is profoundly amplified and ramped up by these new systems that allow you to really track people in in, in just horrific ways. And of course, the pandemic has been a, a big driver to see those logics deepen. And it feels like that AI-generated efficiency is is not just a component of an industrial capacity of companies like Amazon, but it, it's actually, in, it, it's, it's its core value proposition. Mm-hmm. And that feels mm-hmm. different in a way than some of these previous industrial moments. Uh, you, you mentioned an Amazon rep during a labor negotiation saying that we can talk about all sorts of other issues, but the rate, the efficiency, is our business model. We can't change that. So it feels like they are saying there that everything else we can talk about, but not the way AI is going to be deployed to make our workers more efficient. That is our business. That is the business. And and what's really terrifying is that that's a business that a lot of other companies are looking at and saying, how do we emulate that? You know, how do we how do we catch that and then apply it to any other type of workplace, because it is simply this this modular component. It's this way of thinking about time and, and algorithmic control that could be applied to anything. And and it is it is the business model. And you know, it's, it's it's to me, it was it was one of the most sort of chilling moments of looking at how that kind of corporate ideology can be made completely explicit. You can just say it, and people will be like, right, that's the model. Now, how do we apply it? Rather than seeing it as something which is in itself, you know, so dehumanizing, um, so corrosive to the experience of dignity at work. Um, you know, that, that to me was, was, you know, itself part of this, part of this moment of thinking about how does that model start to get applied more widely and, and how would you stop it? Because, you know, it itself, I think, threatens ideas of, you know, time sovereignty and, agency in and a sense of pride in what we do at work every day yeah and of course the other resource that this technology uses is is data and i feel like that's the one that publics are most familiarized with i mean everybody knows that ai needs huge amounts of data but but a couple of things really struck me the way you just dis- you talk about these data one is, on the one hand, how limited some of those original data sets actually were that led mm-hmm. to AI as we now know it. I mean, these were not massive Facebook data sets of 2.2 billion users' daily input. These were very constructed things almost um, and, yeah. and limited data sets, which I found fascinating. But the other is that mm-hmm. it, it seemed that you're, you put more weight on the way those data are classified as a problem not just the data themselves. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the sort of bias in da- data conversation at the moment seems to focus on the data themselves being biased. But 
you right. say, take a sort of a broader view of that. And, Right. I mean, certainly the problem of bias in artificial intelligence has become very well known. You know, people can can cite sort of a litany of examples of, of you know, of systems that have produced discriminating results for women, for communities of colour, for, you know, people over the age of 65. I and mean, it, it just, it, it's endless. Um, but in, in, in researching these questions for for you know well over a decade of specifically looking at issues around sort of bias and discrimination it it became clear to me that that's like the megafauna of of this ecology you know it's you can see it you can describe it it's clearly problematic and the response of the tech industry has been oh we can fix that oh we can remove that you know uh, problematic classification or we can we can balance our data sets so that we don't you know, have systems that only recognize, you know, white male faces or, you know, these... We can make better data. Mm, yeah. <laughs> we can gather more yeah. data. More importantly, right. we can get more, more data and right. that will address the problem. More, more is better. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and in fact, you know, even that phrase, you know, more data is better data, you can trace all the way back to, you know, people like Robert Mercer when he was working at IBM, um, you know, uh, you know, 45, 50 years ago. So, you know, that ideology runs deep, but it doesn't address the problem. And and once you get past the megafauna and it's sort of the, 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 the quite clearly spectacular failures, you get to this deeper issue of what are the logics on which these systems are built? What are the worldviews that they have been trained to normalise and perpetuate? And to, to see that actually requires not just looking at at, at the sort of egregious instances of failure and bias, but to look at what does normalcy look like? What do these systems actually do when they say they're working? And here is, is, is something which I think is far more disturbing, which is that the very logics upon which these systems are trained contain within them, within them ideas that you know are, are clearly either illogical, nonsensical, or objectionable. So you could think here of binary gender as being a way that, you know, so many of these systems categorize people. Some use, you know, you know, five categories for race. I mean, things that sort of harken back to, you know, the apartheid system, you know, including the, other being the fifth, right? Well, right, you know, the, <laughs> there's always a category for like other or not identified, you know, which is which is always kind of extraordinary. Um, but to, to, but to me, this you know, this is a this is a methodology that I developed, you know, working alongside Trevor Paglin uh, when we did a project called Excavating AI, and, and we use that term excavating you know, very consciously, it is it is like an archaeological method where we would start to look at what are the ways in which data are labelled and classified, how are images and text said to have a singular meaning, and what sorts of meaning are being constellated by these technical systems. And what we found time and time again was, you know, a profoundly normative uh profoundly um, racist, sexist, and ableist vision of, you know, the quote-unquote average person, but also this idea that you can really categorise people in these kind of very narrow ways, um, perpetuated throughout so many of the systems that touch our lives every day. And when you see that, the the focus shifts away from or where do they fail us, but why are they working this way and why and what are the political impacts of that? Because this is politics by other means. And, and that's the piece that I think is so often left out is that, you know, AI systems are still somehow seen as objective and neutral, you know, calculating machines when in actual fact it's politics all the way down. Yeah. 
it's it's politics, but it's also those politics intersect with our political systems and our governance systems as well, um, in some complicated ways, as you as you describe. And there there really is this intertwining of corporate and state interests in AI. <laughs> I wonder if you could describe as a way into that element of this, this alignment between state and corporate interests, um, what the IBM terrorist credit score is. Right, right. Well, I mean, it, it's it's a really interesting example because, of course, it was a simulation that uh, a group within IBM sort of came up with almost as a sort of a marketing pitch. Um, it was for them a sort of a, a presentation that they could make which said, look, you know, what we see is a, a real movement of refugees across Europe. What if terrorists are traveling and sort of along with these groups and, and you know, pretending to be refugees, how would we start to distinguish between a real refugee and a potential terrorist? Um, and how would we do that with large-scale data? And so they developed this terrorist credit score and it's, you know, it's drawn on unstructured data like sort of Twitter data but also, you know, sort of very standardised kind of passport-type data. But, of course, all of this was simply to show that you could use, you know, refugees as test cases for these types of military and policing logics. And... You know, it, it, it's just one of those moments where you get to see the way in which I think there's been a conflagration of state and uh, tech sector power. And this the, these sectors that we saw as being ultimately quite separate, you know, the private sector and the public sector, have been in the space of AI conjoined for decades. And that connection is only getting stronger under the current guise of the you know, so-called AI war, which I think is really problematic and is is operationalized to try and, you know, reduce any type of regulation or restriction that could be put on the tech sector because, you know, if we don't do it, then China oh, yeah. will, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. I mean, it's, yeah. it's this absolute sort of bogeyman politics um, that I, I think is, is profoundly worrying. But, you know, Instead, I think if we look at this analytically, we can see that there's something quite interesting happen and happening with with the way in which states and the tech sector are operating right now. And you know, Benjamin Bratton, the theorist, sort of looks at the ways in which you know planetary scale computation is in many ways taking on the roles of the state. So you know, at the same time the states are taking on kind of the roles of what we might understand kind of machine logics to do. So we have states taking on the armature of machines because machines have already taken on the roles and register of states. You know, that's the parallel that we're starting to see happen. On the, on the governance side of this, I've... I've often been frustrated by this push towards, or not frustrated, but um, unsatisfied by this first, this push towards AI governance, which is such a kind of hot topic in the tech policy world and the global governance community at the moment. And it, it's always felt to me like uh, AI wasn't the right unit to be governing; that it, it mm -hmm. wasn't it wasn't the thing that could be governed. 
even though it was being used as the conceptual framing for a, a set of policies people were trying to figure out. But that was leading, has been led to either no progress on a policy agenda or very easy kind of avoidance of meaningful policy from the AI companies because it really wasn't sort of a tangible thing. So I guess, what do you think about this broader AI governance framing that is being widely debated around the world? But more importantly, is is that right? That, that AI as this intangible technical thing isn't the right governance frame? Do you think it should actually be these extractive inputs that you talk about or these components mm. of the broader infrastructure? And maybe they're the mm. place we need to govern. And we don't need to think about governing AI as a thing. We just need to govern all these other components of it. Exactly. And there's a, there's a, a couple of important points to, to unpack there. I mean, it, first is this idea of, is AI the right unit of analysis for governance, both nationally and internationally? And I would suggest, as you say, it is not. And we're actually, we need to sort of widen that lens again to look at these deeper questions of extractive infrastructures and the, the places where these systems are brought to bear on human bodies in institutions, uh, be it criminal justice or healthcare, or education or hiring. But at the same time as we're hearing this sort of highfalutin language, particularly around international governance of technology, it's happening with this very dark backdrop of a type of nationalist AI agendas, this, this you know, kind of the usual articulations of xenophobia and mutual suspicion and sort of network hacking. And, you know, there's this fantastic book by Tang Hu Hui, who, which is called The Prehistory of the Cloud, which, which really... I think isolates this shift that has happened just in the last 10 years, really, from this very sort of liberal vision of, you know, global digital citizens who are engaging as equals in these sort of abstract spaces of networks. I mean, you remember this, Taylor, this is very much mm. kind of, you know, uh, you know, web 2.0 sure. optimism about, yeah. you know, everyone sort of, you know, being, you know, being able to get on in internet space. But now we've sort of seen this shift towards a much more paranoid vision of, you know, defending a national cloud against a sort of a racialized enemy and the, the specter of the foreign threat, you know. So that's the context in which people are now saying if we are to create some form of computational governance structure or principles and laws and regulations, how do we do that at a transnational level? When clearly that's what we have to do, the sorts of, you know, regulating it at the level of the nation state is, is also too small a unit, if you will. The sort of, so I think you're exactly right that to look at the way in which you transcend the bounds of the nation state to think about the ways in which different sorts of structures of governance with bigger questions could be created, that's the big challenge. And that's, that's a really important project. And I think in some ways we could, we could, you know, we could talk at length about the proposed EU guidelines yeah. for AI regulation and because yeah. you can on see risk. both. I mean, they, they've come, they've, but, but also industrialization. I mean, they're also right there. They're very, right. as you say, very concerned about, um, about e European industrial capacity to exploit exactly. data, to create data, to build AI companies. Right. So it's serving right. those two purposes there. 
spot on. So in mm-hmm. some ways, you know, it's it's both concern about the quote unquote risk, but at the same time, wanting to protect the ability to emulate the model, the current model of of centralized power in AI development. And 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 I think that that is a that is a major misstep for the EU. I think trying to replicate those centralized models is the problem. If we come at the governance frame through the lens of resource extraction and exploitation, labor and data exploitation, and create governance mechanisms around those, do we still have an AI problem? I mean, it's interesting because what it does is it decenters the technology in, I think, a really useful way. Because otherwise, what we have is a situation where we're chasing the tail of industry, you know, for every, every new development, you know, does the current governance framework extend to it or does it have to be rethought? And, and this is the kind of chasing game that we've seen with GDPR in Europe, you know, over the last few years, right? It takes so long to get these kind of regulatory frameworks in place. And when they're in place, they're already behind where the edge of technological development is. So I think we do need to sort of abstract up a layer to start looking at these these broader questions around how you know power is is centralized and mobilized by these systems, who benefits from these systems, and who's harmed. And when we kind of ask those more core questions, I think we get to look at these wider, essentially sort of political economies of infrastructures and data. And I think that means that that AI just becomes part of a much bigger set of questions that we have to ask, um, really around how society is going to be constructed alongside these systems as they start to, to you know, infiltrate so many of the institutions that we rely on. And, and I think without real forms of governance do challenge our understandings of democracy. And, and this is something that you've written about as well, Taylor, and I think you're, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, this is the core kind of democratic threat until we start to contend with how we would govern these systems more broadly, not just AI, but all of those processes of extraction and exploitation. Yeah. Just just to close, you 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 mentioned a, just an amazing Ursula Franklin quote, the limits of technology, like democracy, depends in the end on the practice and on the enforcement of the limits to power, which feels like it's speaking to that exact final point you make there. Yeah. This is about yeah. bigger things. <laughs> it is. It is about these these broader questions around you know the practice of justice and the enforcement of limits to power. I mean, you, you you'd be hard pressed, I think, to see where those limits currently extend for the tech sector right now. It, it's it's so remarkably unregulated, and it, it faces so few limits in terms of its you know day to day practices and. That foundational problem is the one that I think we have to face. And, and, and it does, to answer it, requires connecting these questions of power and justice from epistemology to labour rights, from resource extraction to data protections, from racial inequality to climate change. And, and, and it actually means that we're having to ask these bigger political questions around what collective political life is going to look like and and where do we say that's enough where do we say that is where the limit must be set you know what are those politics of refusal and what do they look like because without it as you say we have no limits and that fundamentally erodes any idea of a functioning democracy that was my conversation with kate crawford 
As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.